not need to be reminded that there is an election next week. For months we've been inundated with political messages. Our mailboxes have been literally stuffed with flyers promoting candidates for various offices. Commercials on television have been constant reminders that we will soon exercise one of the great freedoms that we enjoy as Americans when this next Tuesday, November the 6th, we will cast our vote and select our national leaders. We're told that the two presidential candidates alone have spent a staggering $2 billion in this 2012 campaign, so the stakes are high. And the nation, the nation is divided right down the middle. Red and blue are currently split 50-50. But one thing that both sides seem to have in common is that both are promising hope and change. And because we have no choice but to have on our political glasses right now, let's just, let's just go ahead and keep them on as we look together at the life and leadership of Jesus, who did more to advance hope and change on this earth than any other before or since. Dr. James Allen Francis wrote in his classic essay, One Solitary Life. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpentry shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 years old when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed tomb through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, all the presidents that have been elected, put together, have not affected the life of man on earth as much as this one solitary life. When Jesus appeared on the scene and rose to prominence, many of the Jews concluded that this was the long-awaited Messiah that would change the world by means of a political or a military revolution. They had heard the prophecies. They had read the prophecies. They expected a Messiah who would over overthrow the Romans and restore the sovereign nation of Israel. Surely Jesus was the political Savior that they so desperately 
wanted. You see, these Israelis were concerned about their nation. And we understand that, don't we? I know you're like me. You care deeply about our country. And we're concerned about the frequency of random acts of violence. We're alarmed by the moral decadence. We're anxious about the future of the family and the health care system and the economy and our national defense. But folks, what we're experiencing in 2012 does not compare with the plight of the Jews under Roman domination when Jesus walked on the earth. There were frequent uprising by Jewish militants that resulted in the deaths of thousands of their people. And the Romans mercilessly crushed them, and they did it without conscience because they didn't even consider the Jews to be fully human. And the excessive taxation and the religious suppression and the daily active persecution that included imprisonment and even execution without legal due process, we have absolutely no frame of reference for what it was like. So you can understand how desperate the nation of Israel was for a deliverer. But sadly, they could only conceive of a political, a military savior. So consequently, the nation of Israel divided into four factions, and each of these parties wanted hope and change, but they wanted it achieved in very different ways. First, there were the zealots, the militants. They wanted to bring about change by overthrowing the Roman government using any means necessary, and that included violence. And the zealots were extremists. They were terrorists who would conceal a knife that could be pulled out to stab an unsuspecting Roman soldier and then disappear into the crowd. And they justified their anger. They justified their hatred. They justified their violence by saying things like this. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And the zealots were sure. They were sure that the Messiah would lead them in military conquest. And then, on the other hand, there were the Essenes. These are the, the pacifists. Their political approach was to withdraw. They believed that the culture was so corrupt and the Roman occupation so powerful that the only logical response was to withdraw from it. So they lived in the wilderness. They lived in caves, in the mountains to avoid the political unrest, to avoid the cultural immorality. And they were sure the Messiah was on their side. And when He came, He would see how they had separated themselves, and He would surely reward them for it. Then the third group was the Pharisees. These are the legalists. And they thought the way to turn the political tide was to legislate morality, and they created a vast system of laws for the people to follow. And they tried to force cultural change with lots of rules and regulations. And they were sure the Messiah would be on their side because they had the Ten Commandments posted everywhere. And there was no group that worked harder to make sure that society was conforming to the finer points of religious law. And the fourth group was the Sadducees. They were not legalists. They were 
liberals, and they would soften the law of Moses, and they would interpret the Scriptures in such a way that it didn't cause problems or it didn't create tensions with the ruling political powers. Their response to the Roman government was, if you can't beat them, join them. And they were hoping that their good standing with the ruling powers would result in the Messiah being on their side because they could offer the quickest path to political success. So here's the dilemma. With which of these political religious factions would Jesus identify? And there are some striking parallels between our contemporary political climate and the political parties of Jesus' day. And everyone wanted then, and some still want today, to get Jesus on their side. But it turns out that Jesus is not on the side of the zealots, and He is not on the side of the Essenes, neither is He on the side of the Pharisees or the Sadducees. And we should probably know that Jesus is not on the side of any political party today. Do you know whose side Jesus is on? He is on His own side. He went out of His way to avoid identifying with a political party. He went out of His way to avoid wearing a political mantle. He was all about establishing a kingdom, but He said, my kingdom is not of this world. And people never seem to get it. In John chapter 6, there's something like a national convention going on. There's a crowd probably numbering somewhere around 10,000. They filled up a hillside. They want to hear Jesus speak. There were many in that crowd that day who thought, this is it. This is the defining moment. Jesus had just miraculously fed them all with five small barley loaves and two small fish. And they were ready to make Him their king, whether He would accept it or not. And in verse 15 of John 6, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make Him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by Himself. And Jesus clarified that His kingdom is not temporal. His kingdom is eternal. And His kingdom is not material. His kingdom is spiritual. And in John 18, 36, He said, My kingdom is not of this world. He said, The kingdom of God is within you. In other words, it's an inside-out kingdom. And it's also an upside-down kingdom. When he said in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And if people wanted to know Jesus' plan for hope and change, it's through heart conversion. It's through life transformation. It's through personal salvation, one life at a time. It's through obeying the great commandment to love your heavenly Father, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's through carrying out the great commission, making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them. That's His platform. That's His agenda. And it is also the mission of this church. Some have tried to advance the idea that the answer today is a Jesus for President 
campaign. Did you know there's actually a blog out there by that name? And the author is seriously launching a movement to enlist a write-in vote for Jesus in the 2012 election. And about 5,000 people have already agreed to do so at last count. Friends, that is just silly. It's silly. It would be a waste of your vote because Jesus will never run for president. Why in the world would he? He had such an opportunity more than once, and he absolutely rejected it. And it's because of Revelation 19:16, he's identified as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, it seems to me that anything would be a come down from that. And there's no more effective approach to bring about real hope and change than the approach that Jesus took. He changed the world without political office. He changed the world without military power. He did it by making the grace of God and the love of God real and believable to people. So bottom line, as people who have put our trust in Jesus, what should be our mindset as we engage in this upcoming election? I would characterize it in two statements. Statement one, involvement in the political process is an obligation for all Christians, part of our obedience to Romans. Chapter 13, verses 1 and 5, it says to submit to the governing authorities. In other words, it's, it's our civic duty we're talking about here. And our involvement in the political process should involve three components. And the first one is that we ought to commit ourselves to uphold biblical values. This is why we have voter guides available here at Crossroads. We want our church family to be well informed about where the candidates stand on biblical issues like the sanctity of life, the sacredness of traditional, biblical, natural marriage. The evil, the evil of stealing from our children and grandchildren by excessive national debt, addressing poverty by taking care of widows and orphans, the defense of the defenseless in this world from totalitarianism or attempted extermination. And some people want to ask, well, why does the church have to talk about political issues? Well, here's why. Because these issues I just mentioned were addressed in the Word of God long before the formation of anybody's political platform. And as Christ followers, we don't separate our spiritual lives from our political lives. When you become a Christian, you don't merely accept Him as your Lord, you submit, submit to Him as your Lord. And Jesus is Lord over every area of your life, your moral choices, the way you manage your money, the things you do for entertainment, your attitudes, your relationships. And He is Lord of the vote you cast. And to separate your politics from your faith, well, that is just to possess a faith that is not authentic because Jesus is Lord of all, or He is not Lord at all. Now, another component of our mandatory 
participation in the political process is to pray. When Jesus taught His disciples how to pray, He gave them a model known as the Lord's Prayer. Most of us know it from memory. At least we know the first couple of lines. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's break it right there. Because much of the prayer commits us to use our influence to promote righteousness. When you pray, I want your kingdom to come here on earth. When you pray, I want your will to be done here on earth. If you are a citizen of the United States, I'm not sure you can pray that prayer with sincerity and then not follow through and vote. Now, we've been intentional and we've been strategic as a church over the past 40 days. We tried to rally our people to, to pray together for the nation leading up to the election. And I think this year has presented some Christians with a real dilemma in determining for whom they should vote. On the one hand, we have a man who is a professing Christian and yet is clearly not aligned with the values of the Bible and who for the last 20 years has been a part of a church served by a radical pastor who politically, who publicly rather, and verbally damned America from his pulpit. Most of us have seen the video. On the other hand, we have a man who upholds biblical values but is a practicing member of a church that denies the truth of 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, that Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. So more than ever in my lifetime, we're presented with a decision that requires the wisdom of God, and it is available to us when we ask in faith, when we pray. And I've resolved the issue in my own conscience, and you must resolve it in yours through prayer. And then when you do, then you're ready to take the final step in the process, and that is to cast your vote. See, unlike people living in the time of Jesus, we live in a democracy. That means in America, we the people, we are the government. And with our vote, we're able to participate in electing our leaders. And if we're wise, we'll cast our vote for candidates who walk in righteousness and truth because Proverbs 14.34 says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And because of Proverbs 3.33, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but He blesses the home of the righteous. And I don't have time this morning to go through all the Scriptures that declare the advantages, the blessings of being reared in a home, being brought up in a nation, being a part of a church that is led by truly godly men and women. Our, our vote is like a gift that we're privileged to be able to give ourselves. So three imperatives for us here. If we're serious, if we're serious about seeing our Lord's kingdom come and seeing His will be done on earth, then we will uphold biblical values, we will pray for wisdom, and we will cast our vote. But we should be reminded in worship today of one other truth, and that is this. Involvement in the political process is not the best way to bring about hope and change. And the reason I say this is simply because the political process sing, seeks to bring about hope and change from the outside in. 
But the Word of Christ teaches us that real lasting hope and change must come from the inside out. So the solutions to our problems as individuals or as a nation are not political, but they are spiritual. And you can try to vote hope and change into office, and you can try to legislate hope and change, but until the hearts of people are changed, then things are going to stay, stay the same at best, or more likely, over time, they will degenerate. The most effective way to bring about hope and change is through a personal and national spiritual revival. President Franklin Roosevelt said it this way, I seriously doubt if there is a problem, political or economic, that will not melt before the fire of a spiritual awakening. And when Jesus began His public ministry, He went back to His hometown of Nazareth to make His announcement about what His platform of leadership was going to be. He laid it out in very specific terms, what He was committed to do. Here it is, Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that was probably not what the people in his hometown had hoped to hear. In fact, their reaction to his message that day was fury. This is his hometown. Fury. And they drove Jesus out of town to the brow of the hill on which the city was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. And likewise, some today angrily scoff at the idea that inner transformation is the pathway to hope and change. They got other ideas, so they'll write big checks to help political candidates get elected for a few years. They would never think of giving significantly to advance God's purpose through the church. They'll tirelessly campaign for a political candidate, but they would never think of devoting that kind of time and energy to serving God's purpose through the church. Listen, it wasn't that Jesus thought that politics didn't matter. Of course it matters. It's just that He understood the inherent human limitations of politics. And that's why He sent His disciples out, not to overthrow governments or to attain political office. I think it's why Jesus intentionally had disciples with vastly different political views. Simon was a zealot. Matthew was a tax collector for the Romans. But Jesus united them in His kingdom. In His kingdom, you love your enemies and you pray for those who are spiteful toward you. In His kingdom, the last are first. In His kingdom, the way to greatness is to be the servant of all. In His kingdom, you put the needs of others above your own. In His kingdom, the weak and the sick and the poor are cared for unselfishly. In His kingdom, the humble are exalted. The meek inherit the earth. In His kingdom, the truth is spoken in love. 
But if the statistics are true, and 80% of the U.S. population claims to at least be nominally Christian, and if 43% of the population say they were in church last week, then why is it easier in America to obtain a divorce than a car loan? Why are 15 million kids, one-fourth of our children, growing up without a dad? Why is it easier for a minor to get an abortion than to have their teeth cleaned? Why are there more adult bookstores than there are McDonald's restaurants? We want to blame politicians and the political process, and so our hopes rise or fall with every election. Our hopes are attached to the laws that are passed, but I'm telling you, these are false hopes. Chuck Colson put it this way, the kingdom of God is not going to arrive on Air Force One. In a blog written shortly before his death, Colson likened the illusion that there is a political solution for every problem to a kind of mental illness. He asserts that if we put our faith in politics, we make politicians our savior. One well-intentioned writer recently said it this way, we have an opportunity to save Christianity on November 6th. Listen, friends, if God is capable of advancing His kingdom forcefully with Nero on the throne of Rome, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that God will accomplish His purpose no matter who occupies the Oval Office. There's no doubt that this election is important. And every Christian has an obligation to uphold biblical values and pray and vote. At the same time, we must remember our hope is not in choosing the right president. It is people, one at a time, choosing Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Our hope is not in changing things on the outside. It's being changed from the inside. Our hope is not in politicians legislating morality. It is in Jesus Christ changing hearts. And our hope is not in political rhetoric. It is in the truth of God's Word. And our hopes don't rise and fall with the poles. Our hope is secure in the person of Jesus Christ. Our hope is not in Washington, D.C. It's in heaven our hope is not in reform, it is in repentance. And our hope is not in political revolution, it's in a spiritual revival. Titus chapter 2 verse 13 says, Jesus is our blessed hope. So how about your heart? Is it right with God? That's the thing that counts today.